Just wanted to give the Buddha a little more exposure. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, I guess it's better now, isn't it? Good. Let us start by sitting, acknowledging the inner world, the climate of mind and heart, the climate of body, the energetic tone of the body. So, with how much of myself can I be present right now? What's actually there? What does it, when I ask how, what's happening? How does it feel? Can I be in touch with it? What's coming back when I ask these things? Usually we don't ask. Usually we, we say things. This needs to happen or I got to get this done or why am I not finished yet? Usually we, we don't ask. Meditation begins with asking. Very simple magic questions. What's happening? How does it feel? Can I be in touch? Can I be in relationship with it? Then we begin to sift. Rather than believing or joining, joining up to the thought trains or the moods that are on display, Being aware means knowing what is taking place. It is the knowing of that which takes place that is the awareness of it. That does two things. A, it gives me a better perspective of what actually does take place. And B, it disidentifies my tacit self with the content of my experience, because the knowing dimension of this is not identical with the content of the experience. That already weakens my self-position, because suddenly there is a meta-awareness, this time meta with one T. There is something there, and there is something else there that knows what's there. It's capable of knowing. And lo and behold, they have some perspective. They have some distance. They're not identical. That knowing ground is capable of receding. So it means the space around the thing that I experience becomes bigger. That's the magic of a little question. So build your posture and trust your weight to the ground beneath you. Align yourself with the forces of gravity. Pay particular attention to the angle at which your head is. If you open your eyes right now, just try to have your gaze going straight forward rather than down on the ground, actually as if you pull yourself up with the axis of your eye so that you're looking straight ahead. Even if you close your eyes again now, that 
as if you were looking straight ahead and down on the ground. And then let's take stock. What's there? What talks in the body? What can I feel of this body right now? I hope it is fed. Maybe it wants to lie down and go through its postprandial phase. Mild fatigue, preoccupation with digestive processes, little blood for the brain left. And the, the body's response would be to get the brain as close to horizontal as possible. That means the least amount of effort is needed to get the oxygens up there. Yeah? So that's how the body thinks. And we can acknowledge that this is the reality of the body, but we have other plans right now. So we make choices. One of the choices is posture, sitting upright. We sit upright to help the breathing. We sit upright because in some strange way this conserve, conserves energy. And by suggesting an upright posture to the body, we suggest an upright and alert attitude to the mind. We performatively give voice to our intention of wakefulness by making the body sit intentionally upright. And it, the skill is, or the art is, to make that as restful as possible. Open your chest. Make sure your shoulders are relaxed. Let's look at some different tones of sensation in the body. Solidity, the earth element, resistance, expansion would be the physical dimension of the earth element. Where is it so solid, reliably, trustworthy, worthily uh, solid? My hips are quite good. Small of the back is quite good. The base of my skull feels quite solid. I can feel the alignment of these three. And that gives me a strange sort of pleasant feeling coming from the confidence that this, this body is holding up. It, all, it doesn't always, but it, now it feels really good. So that trust, confidence, makes it more easy to relax. Rhythms of the body, the heartbeat, the breath. And then there is a climate of mind, sort of an inner weather. Now let's see whether it's possible to discern some layering in that inner weather. Is this a bright mood or not? Is this happy? Or is it, more, is it more of a cloudy day today? Is it euphoric? Or just quiet? Or just tired? Sometimes we're quiet because we don't have the energy to be running around anymore. It's a different kind of quietude. Is it quiet because it's boring? That also is a different flavor. Is it quiet because I'm sleepy? 
yet another flavor of quietude. Very peaceful, dozy sleepiness. Doesn't hurt. That's good enough for me. So, depending what you meet in there, it may be necessary to open your eyes, to redress your posture, to deepen your in-breath. Those would be all tools to help you with the, the quiet that comes from sleepiness. If you just sit there and hope that the sleepiness will go past without you doing anything, it's probably going to win. So there are things that benefit from our non-reactivity. Sleepiness is not amongst them. Sleepiness needs intervention. When I'm greedy and I don't react, I don't act on my greed, it just passes. And I, non-activity is good for greed. It's not good for sleepiness. So get a feeling for your inner world, your inner climate. If you found that you're happy or sad, you will probably find there is layers of the opposite in there as well. There may be things, even when you're sad, that give you a certain degree of happiness. Even if you're happy, there may be things in your life that you can be in touch with right now that give you something of sadness, something of loss, something of grief maybe, something of anxiety. So let's not cut out the complexity or the ambivalence or even the contradictoriness of some of what we feel if we inhabit that inner space. If sleep and low energy is here, pay particular attention to your posture. Human mind doesn't fall asleep in one piece. First sense to go is the sense of balance. In other words, your posture will probably manifest in some way that you're losing your sense of balance when you're falling asleep. Maybe your head starts to sink. Maybe your breath is slightly brittle. Maybe there is a hardness in the upper part of your chest. Maybe there is a leaden feeling circling around your eyes. Your chest may cave in. There's thousand ways of falling asleep physically when you're trying to sit upright. Find out when any of those things are actually happening and you have a better chance of counteracting that sleepiness. Emphasizing your in-breath, deepening your in-breath, opening your eyes, holding your breath for a minute, just wait what happens. Quite effective. The most important and crucial one is acknowledging the physical, somatic quality of sleepiness in the body. When you acknowledge this, you're in a much better position to do something about it. If it's really bad, you can get up, just stand. It's very difficult to fall asleep standing. It's not impossible, but it's a lot more difficult.
Please take a stretch. Good, I'm very happy to see you have come back after the break. It's always a good sign. I would like to continue where I believe I have left off this morning. Um, I think a crucial distinction between the compassion is an active quality of mind. Now, to get back to intentionality as the as my main theme, the intentionality of these Brahma-viharas, on the level of compassion would be the wish to ameliorate the conditions of what I compassionately resonate with. How can this be helped, is the question. How can this be alleviated? Not how can this be fixed, but how can this be helped? Um, I also like to fix things, uh, so I am told, and uh, um, occasionally the wish to fix things has more to do with me wanting to fee- feel useful than with uh, my genuine wish to actually help somebody hold something that is difficult. You know? So, let me fix this for you can translate into let me live in a world I am in control and that. Ob- that obeys my structure and that honors my sense of order and competency. So sometimes my wish to help um, has a lot to do with wishing to help myself construct to feel okay and comfortable within its given definitions rather than actually genuinely meeting the need of another. So there is something to be distinguished there, particularly the male psyche seems to be more prone to this kind of thing, um, if I may say so. So I'm, I'm going to fix you, even if it kills you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so the act, the, the intentionality is to help, not to help what makes me feel better, in order stop making this contorted face that gives me the feeling I'm not okay here, but actually finding out why this face is contorted. Yeah. This, these are two different things. Sometimes people feel, you know, I compassionately kill the thing that is, seems to be suffering so that I don't have to suffer my own helplessness when I am confronted with a type of suffering I may not be able to fix. Yeah. Sometimes I just want to put myself out of misery. And this is not, uh, this is not genuine compassion. Yeah? So the, the wish to alleviate suffering, the wish to help somebody hold the suffering that cannot be fixed. There's many forms of suffering that cannot be fixed. You know, Loss. You can't fix grief. You can't fix loss. Uh, So rather than just feeling a sense of solidarity in suffering or or share some of the pain of that suffering, which is a, a part of compassion, there is a strong wish for this suffering to be alleviated, for this suffering to be 
brought in a better, in a wider context for this suffering to somehow be better held. There's a big, big distinction in, in Western psyche, and I'm an old Catholic, so, you know, we, we have relegated compassion to women, you know, so it's the kind of Mother Mary sort of thing. We do strange things to women, you know. We, we are, maybe it's a Buddhist monk thinking, but to see that in countries where the Mother Mary is most ferociously worshipped, maybe the very same cultures that actually behave towards real existing women in quite derogatory ways. So there seems to be a strange correspondence there to the elevation of the feminine on one hand and the downtreading of real existing women on the other hand. So you can see that. There are particular cultures which seem to have brought about this strange dichotomy. So if you look at Catholic history, for example, this seems to be quite obvious to me. Relating to pain is not something that should be just relegated to one type of human being. It's something that we're all capable of. And relating to that pain in ways that don't just take care of our own pain we incur in that situation or try to go for a quick fix, but actually relating to that which is pained. In other words, holding the relationship to the suffering being rather than make it disappear, either disappear from my eyes or disappear from, you know, take this person out of, of his or her suffering is another impulse that may stand in the way of genuine compassion. We need to understand and we need to relate when we want to be truly compassionate. We need to be able to bear some of what this person is bearing, at the same time not lose our strength, not lose our clarity, and particularly not lose our power to act, to generate activity. I think Tibetan iconography has that very clearly. I mentioned it briefly last night. Uh, grammatically, Avalokiteshvara is masculine, which um, doesn't hold, maybe doesn't prove that he's a man. Um, but it is an indication there that it is the Tibetan culture perceives Avalokiteshvara to be masculine. It is compassion that is masculine and it is wisdom that is feminine. That's interesting, isn't it? It would be, for most of us, the other way around. So if your conditioning is anything like mine, then the job separation happens the other way around where I come from. You know, it's, it's the men and they're wise and it's the, femin- it's the women that are compassionate. Which obviously is a joke, you know? History is full of wise women and it's full of compassionate men. Some strange way, sometimes we say that of generals, isn't it? He's a very compassionate general. So in other words, we say that his power, he obviously has, is tempered by compassion. And we feel this is good. We want him to be powerful and we want him to be compassionate as well. And some strange way that tells us quasi via the back door that there is an acknowledgement that power and 
sensitivity can go together. Yeah. In fact, they need to go together. Yeah. Just sensitivity is a big problem. You know, feel everything, can't do anything about it. Go helpless, go in a flap, yeah. get lost, can't handle it, have to split. Um, overly sensitive people have to be also overly strong people. If they're just sensitive, that means they're just going to be sensitive to their own feelings. Yeah. If we say if somebody's sensitive, we often mean he's only sensitive to his or her own feelings, meaning actually he's not really that sensitive to me or to other things around him. It's sensitive to his own delicate, uh, precious condition. And this cruel world is really, an, it's really not for him. It's too sensitive for it. That's not compassionate. So while the sensitivity is a key ingredient in compassion, that sensitivity is matched with strength. Uh, Dare I say it with some kind of stout-hearted power in that person. Somebody who is capable of engaging and acting. That's a powerful statement, and that is different from the Mother Mary image we had. Mother Mary, as I got to know her, was basically somebody who could bear pain. She was really good at holding pain. She wasn't really famous for decisive action and, and, you know, merciful intervention or things like that. She She was there to comfort and to bear pain and to not complain. And you see, that's not really the whole picture. These are qualities. Being able to hold things and bear pain is good. But I would like that quality to be matched with something who can act. Think of what you need for a kid. You need to be able to bear a lot. I don't have children, but I'm told, and it looks like to me very convincingly so, that you need to be able to hold a lot if you're having children. It's not always fun. And they're going to likely make you grow by pushing your buttons and taking you beyond who, who you think you are. Uh, but sometimes you need to actually intervene. It is compassionate to step in, even inflict pain. Yeah. There's this beautiful example somewhere in the suttas where the Buddha tries to find... forgot in what context this was... Uh, a reasoning with a king, and he describes the Buddha asks the king whether if his son would swallow something, take something in his mouth that was bad for him, whether he would take it out of his mouth. And the king says, oh, yeah, no, no, absolutely I would take it out. Um, and then he goes, would, um, would he expect the consent of his child? And the king says, no, 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 I wouldn't expect the consent of my child at all. You know, I would take it out even if it draws blood. Yeah. In other words, I'm quite willing to inflict pain on my child if my child is swallowing something that I fear is going to harm my child. Even if my child disagrees with this, I would take it out of him. Yeah. So as an example of a compassionate act that is not gentle, that is maybe going even against what the, the, the child in this case would wish. Yeah. So sometimes... Uh, there is a place for tough love, as you're saying. I think you call this in English. Yeah. Um, sometimes you, 
you, you have to be acting out of compassion. And that doesn't mean you're soft and all squishy and all kind of fuzzy. Think of protection, the amount of protection children need or people who entrusted themselves into your hands need when, you, when they're weak or when they're not conscious or when, when they're in dangerous circumstances. You need to look after people. And that looking after, that may need sometimes being clear, being strong, even defending. So this is all part of compassion. I've been in monastic life for many, most of my adult years. And you give yourself into other people's hands and you give away power. This, is, this makes you vulnerable in many ways. And you want to do that with people only that are capable of looking after you and, in fact, of looking out for you. Not for you in general, but for you specifically, yeah? for your specific needs, your specific situation. And human beings differ quite a bit, so disempowering yourself is one thing. And if you get entrusted with people uh, giving responsibility and power to you, you must make sure that you can set boundaries. You must make sure that you can protect vulnerabilities. You make sure that you can uh, honor the needs of the people who actually have disempowered themselves or have given themselves into your trust. And that may mean you have to be tough. That may mean you have to be clear. That may mean you have to be on the, on the lookout for both sensitively on the lookout for their needs, but also for what endangers things, what puts them at risk. You don't just want to people make themselves vulnerable and then leave them to their own devices. That's bad therapy, taking defenses away from people and not getting them a better chance to be with what they have to be with or to live with what they have to live with. It's not just not working, it's downright immoral. Yeah? So compassion has also retains, despite all sensitivity or with all sensitivity, access to one's own strength, access to one's own clarity, both clarity of thinking, clarity of intention, but also clarity of action. Yeah? So sometimes the word empathy wouldn't do that justice. So... Um, it's important if I use this kind of psychologized version of the Brahma Viharas as four forms of uni- four universal forms of empathy. It must be clear we're redefining the terms here a little bit. We're shifting the goalposts. We're not just speaking of sensitivity. We're speaking of something that is both clear in its values and in its task, and at the same time, it is capable of doing things. It is capable of either protecting or helping, or, or comforting, or capable of holding a relationship even when this means meeting one's own profoundest bugbears. Yeah? Don't know what yours is. Mine is helplessness. I really don't like to be helpless. Yeah? This is the sort of... That's where Superman meets green kryptonite. Yeah? <laughs> helplessness. So... so. If I look at my psychological build, much of my psychological build, much of the stuff I have developed is basically to not feel helpless. It's to avoid this being here, feeling what it most fears. Powerlessness, 
impotence, helplessness, kind of not having any power to do anything, not having any influence anymore, not being an agent anymore. This is... Uh, you will have similar bugbears. Generally, we're not very original in our most basic fears. Usually, it boils down to, you know, to actually quite few. You can look at your contact patterns and you will figure out. You know, are you more afraid of being left alone or are you more afraid of being overwhelmed? You know? Is it more threatening that you might be get, getting gobbled up or getting pushed away? You know? Um, so these are two big ones already. Are you? And then you can look how you how you strategize against that. Are you more trying to become independent and self-sufficient, or are you more trying to become convincing to others that they should take care of your dependencies? <laughs> yeah. Many, many of the things we do are basically falling into very similar, very simple patterns, you know. We decide very early on what is most threatening to us, and we very early decide what are our best chances as a strategy to develop. And then we develop these strategies, and generally they help. They help us survive, they help us get on, they help us do with what there is available, and we somehow survive. And unfortunately, we then keep repeating these very same strategies for the better part of the rest of our lives, unless we learn. And the strategies are quite useful. They quite often made it possible that we pulled through. But unfortunately, the game changes and our strategies don't. <laughs> and we keep playing something that isn't accurate anymore, that isn't effective anymore, yeah? So we need to find out what kind of strategies we have. I believe this is really where Chitta Upasana comes in. We need to figure out how we operate, what are our worst fears are, and how we cope with them. So how do I negotiate my anxieties? Am I just becoming really fast and really good at improvising and keeping up a hypervigilant state of mind and keeping relaxation paces down to almost nil? Or am I just becoming a control freak? Yeah, this would be two classic examples how to negotiate anxiety, sense of insecurity. Or marry a general. Yeah, that's the other one. Yeah. Get some big bully to take care of me. You know? Big brother, and then big guys in the school, and then powerful people in powerful places, and, then, and so forth. You know, we have looking at one's own strategies, how you actually cope with what you believe to be most threatening to you. This is a very powerful way of understanding what builds your self-construct. My current understanding is that our self-constructs are basically nothing else but a defense reaction. It's the contraction of our psyche to develop the most viable and most promising response to that which we fear most. Now, it's not sure whether what we fear most is actually the most dangerous, because remember, perceptions are not necessarily accurate. Yeah. We may build our self-construct around a fictional threat, yeah. and that will probably lay us open to a quite a few real threats, because if we use that same strategy to cope with fictional threats, 
the real threats will probably go undetected for quite a while and make us more vulnerable. Whatever we do, the psyche is intelligent. The psyche is economical. If you think something doesn't change in your life, it probably is because that thing gets reinforced in some way. And it's necessary to figure out how we do that. If we do it, we can also not do it. If we do it badly, we can probably do it better. So this is a good question. And compassion brings us into a place where we often meet our own pain, where we meet our own vulnerability, where we meet our own helplessness, our own despair. Generally, people don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I like to stay at top of things. Uh, I don't want to go there where it feels bad. I suspect you don't want either. And yet, meeting others' pain will probably take you there. And that means I need to find ways to hold my own pain. I need to have the space for myself when I'm not functioning. When it's not good. When my tricks don't work. When the world I inhabit is a bad one. So compassion... The mindfulness world now speaks of self-compassion, which is an interesting concept. It's, a, it's, a, it's pretty novel, self-compassion. It doesn't correspond to Buddhist teaching, in fact. I'm very happy for the mindfulness world to have come to self-compassion because, you know, it's there all the way in mindfulness. It's just as the mindful world, mindfulness world has, hasn't picked up on the Brahma-viharas in mindfulness, so healthy as it is, it has found something is missing. It was there all the way, you know, it was there all along. <laughs> but it has kind of fallen out in some definitions along the way, and it's good that it comes back on board. But trust me, in Buddhist teaching, that mindfulness has always a component of compassion. Yeah? Because without that component of compassion, we, we do not really know how to be with things we can't resolve. We either have to give up the relationship, that means we split. If we do that with other people, we split off from them. If we do that with ourselves, we split off part of ourselves. Or we go into some frantic compensatory mode. Or we collapse. We somatize. We go depressed or we, uh, we just go sick and basically tell the universe, you can't do that to me, look. Look, I'm so weak. I'm have a headache today. You can't, you can't do traffic jams to me, or no parking space, or you know, demanding boss. You can't do that to me today. I'm have mercy or something like that. Yeah, we we somatize and basically hope that we can avoid the challenge. So compassion takes us generally to a place where we have to be very real with ourselves, because we know that pain that the other person is is experiencing now touches our ourselves in our vulnerability. And to some degree, this is also the, probably the most profound connection we have to others. We recognize our connectedness to others in recognizing our own pain, in their pain. This makes us profoundly uh, solidarious. It makes us profoundly connected to them because we realize They, like we, wish to minimize pain in their lives. They, like me, are likely to suffer losses. Nobody can become an adult and not have losses. Nobody can 
can basically live a life and not, not have disappointments, not have reason for grief. Even if you live a good life, you get old. You will lose people. Even if your life is blessed, you will know people who, whose lives are not blessed. Um, so we all get touched in, in ways where we are not in control, when we're quite clear that even if we do everything right, even if our Buddhist meditation is really good, uh, we still will grieve. We still will have pain. We still will have people who, who get sick, whom we love, who get diagnosis, things like that. Let alone when we self do get them. So that is not an easy thing. And we need to have some space. We need to have some connectedness to our own strength to allow that. Yeah? If I feel I have no strength, then I feel... You know, I can't handle this. I'm feeling overwhelmed. Language is quite clear. Uh, overwhelm is something that happens when the perceived resources and the perceived threat are not commensurate. Yeah. Sometimes it is not just perceived, it is actual. So our psych psyche has a few emergency circuit breakers for this. First defense reaction, schizoid split is a good example. You have a little child, completely sensitive, completely vulnerable, no power. And when that little child is overwhelmed with pain, certain intensity of sensory experience, it is capable of splitting off, of retreating its energies, mentalizing its energies, and going out of the body. We all have done that. It doesn't need dreadful, horrible situations in your life. You know, just it's a too much experience. We all know how to do that. We just <gasps> hold our breath, for example. That's a very easy way. Just hold your breath, stop the breath flow, and you block. Yeah? You decrease your physical sensitivity. You, do, you produce that a few times, and you, you, you can mentalize that activity. Just split away. It means the body is here, but my intention is no longer here. And it basically says you... Although I can't run away, you can't actually hurt me. Yeah? I go to some place where it hurts less. This is a useful strategy. It's a very clever trick of nature to help human vulnerable beings to survive things that they can't control and that potentially can overwhelm them. Unfortunately, if we establish this pattern, you know, we make a habit out of this intervention technique that's kind of, that's like continuing to take the antibiotics even after the infection has gone down. Yeah? So you make this a nutritional supplement rather than an interventive medication. Yeah? And we kind of end up living <clears throat> parts of our life in dissociated forms. Why does this come in under compassion? Because one thing that stops us from compassion is actually being here. Yeah. And that's why this dissociation is really a bad thing. And I'm telling you this because evidence suggests that meditators are particularly good at dissociation. There is a pre-screening going on here. I've been doing this for a number of years, and I know that meditators are more likely to be people who make, to make use of that strategy because they are people who rate in interior experience as important. They will probably have some success in that interiorizing of experience and in uh, diminishing sensory impact because 
there are certain types of people I never see here in these meditation scenes, you know, certain temperaments that just don't seem to turn up here, you know. And that makes me suspicious of that. It makes me believe, and since I have lived with meditative communities for a long time, I have no doubt that there is an over-average chance that meditators, both in, mon- in monasteries and in retreat situations, and even here, you know, present company not, inc- not excluded. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is probably a good chance that many of you know something about dissociation about the capacity to mentalize your experience, to pull your energies in and up. Now, as useful as that is, as legitimate as that is, it is better if it is not a nutritional supplement. It is better if this remains an intervention technique. Because one of the things that we lose when we are operating sort of from a satellite orbiting position to our lives, you know, or as Mr. Joyce called that, Mr. Duffy lived at a short distance from his body. That was one way of putting it. It's one in, somewhere in the Dubliners. I forgot which story it is. Um, if we're dissociated, it's more difficult to be compassionate because we don't connect. We know, but we don't actually connect. Now, psychologically, this is not very effective because if we don't connect we do feel safer and we feel less likely overwhelmed and thus we feel more secure out there because it feels less intense but actually out there we cannot really act that's one of the things we go as soon as we go away from these bodies we lose the power to act the the more dissociated I am the less I can actually act. The more dissociated I am, the less I can actually truly feel what's taking place. I am, in some knowing cognitive way, aware of it, but I don't actually know that in a sort of illustrative way. In an immediate, I've lost the immediacy of experience. So, from a psychological point of view, dissociation is really a bad position to be in because you can't really be happy there. You can't really enjoy there. You can't really be loving there. You can't really do much there. So this cuts out quite a few of your chances to to happiness. It's safe, that's true. But as soon as you go in, it gets gets unsafe again. The problem continues where you have left off. So while distancing and gaining perspective, this is the polite way of referring to dissociation. Just taking one step back and distancing and things like that are useful things to be doing as a skill to gain orientation and perspective. But actually, they don't do the work. That's why not just psychologists and therapists, but also Buddhist practitioners um, are badly off if they dissociate. Because you can't transcend out there. You can only transcend the suffering you've actually come up to. You cannot avoid suffering by not being there. Like one of your um, locals has put it, you know, I I have no objection against death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. So this is the idea, basically, uh, why dissociation comes under the topic of compassion. We need to find out how we can come back here to where that suffering takes place. 
you know, Buddhist cosmology has its own way of saying this. It says this world is a world of toil and sweat and pain. Yeah? Human beings, Tibetan depiction of the wheel of the of wheel of becoming makes it clear. The human realm is the privileged realm. It's also the realm where people get born, where people die, where people have to work, and where people get education, where they get where they can learn something. It's a hard realm, but it's the, basically the privileged realm. Because in that realm, you can do something. It's that realm where you feel enough of the iron behind the velvet to actually galvanize you into kind of action, into forms of doing, into forms, into engagement. So one way to avoid such engagement, one way to avoid such contact is dissociation, is splitting off and pretending it's further away than it actually is. Pretending I can do less than I actually can. Pretending it's more bearable than it actually is. Yeah? So if we want to be compassionate, we need to find out what makes us split off and find ways to come back in and what helps us stay in, stay present. In Buddhist babble, this is basically staying present. One of my friends translates mindfulness as recollection of the present moment. It's a good way. It connects the old meaning of uh, shmurti, uh, which is memory, and the new meaning the Buddhists gave it, namely the fullness of the faculties of mind and heart for that present moment, the present event. So recollecting the present calling ourselves back into the present moment. This is what we need. This is a mindfulness task. And as such, it is the foundation for compassion. That's why sati and the Brahma-viharas go back. It's not just that the Brahma-viharas are influenced by... Sorry, sati is influenced by the Brahma-viharas. Sati is also the key quality to develop those Brahma-viharas. It goes the other way around as well. So coming here and being able and willing even to bear the suffering of whatever needs to be born at that present moment, both in this being and in other beings I am connected with. Now the first thing with dissociation is you need to know when it's happening. You need to find out how much of you is here. And that's where meditation really is handy. Well, meditation can also be abused to split off and go away. Yeah, some safe distance. It is obviously also a fantastic tool to do the opposite. You know, you can create a space and actually go in and feel, okay, what is there? And what helps me being here? What helps me being able to hold that which is unresolved in my own heart, in my own mind, in my own life? The compassion that comes out of this is a compassion that has been lying dormant in us all the time. If we connect to something, and if we're feeling that pain, then we wish to act. We put in our wits, we put in our strength, our skills to make that better. Human beings have always done that. They've done that for themselves, they've done that for the people and for the things they have taken care of. If you have an animal, you take care of that animal. If you have a pot plant, you take care of that pot plant. We do that. You think, okay, how does it look? Yeah, looks quite okay. Ficus lirata, isn't it? Nice one. 
loves water, but not every day, not from everybody every day. Yeah, so all these molly-coddling Buddhists coming in here, <clears throat> drowning the thing out. Yeah? That's more than it needs. So what it needs is a sign that says, do not water. Yeah? It doesn't say, I don't need water. It does need water, but not from everybody every time they come. Yeah? Because it doesn't need permanent mothering. Yeah? It needs just a little water. That's enough. So the compassionate thing is to say a prohibitive sign there, saying, do not water. That makes this thing happy. So that's looking actually at its needs and catering to its needs rather than catering to everybody else's wish to be Jewish mother. Yeah? <laughs> so, so this is compassion. Yeah. Compassion can be a sign saying don't water because it connects to the genuine need of this thing that somebody has taken responsibility for. It can't run away. It can't feed itself. So you know, I'm very happy to see it being taken care of that well. Well, we all do that. You smile, but basically, we all do that. We need a little bit of food, a little bit of water, a little bit of affection, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we need a mixture of it. We're not just needing affection. We also need boundaries. Yeah? We're not just needing unconditional love. We also need challenges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we <laughs> Generally, our, our attempts to help go one way, and they often have to do with skills we have developed. Yeah? So if I've developed something, some knowledge about diets, uh, I tend to think of people have some skin problem, and I tend to think, oh, they, if they should change their diet, you know, if they and maybe that's true, yeah? but maybe it's not true. My suggestion that they change their diet is maybe less based on their specific need as on my perceived specific skill. Yeah? So uh, that helping is a difficult thing. Yeah? We need to calibrate that help really with perceiving the needs of what we have in front of us accurately. And sometimes we're not so accurate in this. If it has helped me, it's going to help you. Yes, if my perception of you is fairly accurate, but perceptions can be very off the mark. And spiritual life is no different from other, other domains of life. Human beings have differing needs. You have different stories. What may be helpful for you in your path may not be helpful for her. And you know, that's the responsibility of the disciple. It's not the responsibility of the teacher. That's where the disciple has to be smarter than the teacher. You have to find people who, who resemble you in some way. You have to find people who talk in a way that connects with your world. That is not so easy. Sometimes you're inspired by things that you don't resemble. Precisely, uh, you may be inspired because they're different than you are. You know? And then we project. But the people who help you are people who in some way you have chosen because they have something for you. And it's your responsibility to make this happen. Don't blame teachers. Teachers, if they're genuine, they just tell you what helped them. Yeah. You need, to, you need to find out whether that is what you need. Yeah. We're not kids. Even our reverence and our, our uh, inspiration should not leave us infantilized. Yeah? We should not infantilize ourselves. We bring a lot of stuff 
to this practice. We're not stupid. We're not sissies. We know a lot. So that should be part of your practice. Assessing needs, both of yourself and of others, is part of this and is part of what makes compassionate activity possible. It's the depth of quality of attention that is the best chance for the depth of quality of your perception of something. In Buddhist psychology, one of the main functions of mindfulness is not the development of samadhi and the development of insight and all the stuff I told last night. That's only part of the truth. One of the main functions of sati is to update your perceptions. Sati's main job is to make sanya, perception, more accurate. Perception is always a little bit inaccurate because it's basically framing what is an essentially fluid sensory world into concepts that can be spoken of, that can be named, that can be managed, that can be referred to, that can be communicated. So even the best of perceptions is basically falsifying what's actually taking place because that moves. While you play with the perception of it, it has moved on. Yeah. So perceptions are always something that has to do with an immediate sensory experience and has to do with a way of framing on an abstract level a relationship to that experience. So the thing moves on and you leave, you have a little frame back. You have a word or, an, or a name or a concept or a construct. And the thing itself has moved. Yeah? Like I gave the example yesterday, the now the instruction to go into the now, which is a useful and germane uh, meditative advice, suddenly becomes a philosophical thing. Now we have a now that is truly existing, and it seems to somehow exist between past and future, and it has an independent existence. And you know, The original instruction is long time lost, and suddenly we have a, a construct called now, which we never live in instead of living in it. And you flag yourself because you don't manage to live there. Yeah. So yet another thing I'm not good at, living in the now. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. So we have made out of a piece of very good situational advice, we've made a philosophical construct which has suddenly taken off on its own, has a life of its own, and then it becomes the, the object of judging ourselves against because we can't live in this fantasy we've created and we believe truly exists. So perceptions always make it possible for us to think, to relate to something, to communicate to something, to recall something, but they do so at the expense of losing their primary immediacy. The only way, we have no choice We can't live at the level of primary immediacy. We have no language there. We have no recall there. We're all engorged in a sudden, very intense, primary, sort of almost grunting immediacy. It's like this, suchness. And if we want to do something with that suchness, then we need to kind of hop out of it. And we lose a little bit of the immediacy, and now we have a name for it. It's called water. And it does something if I go in with all of my skin into that water. We all know that. Ooh, immersion experience. But it's quite difficult to describe somebody what a peach tastes who has never tasted a peach. Yeah? You can't convey immediacy. If you want to convey somebody something about something, you need to resort to abstraction, to concepts, to 
to rhetorics, yeah? metaphor, allegory, comparisons, things like that. And you do that quite, quite powerfully. We can do that, but then you lose some of that immediacy. You still don't have a peach. You have my description of the peach. Yeah? And we need to hop between these worlds. We don't have a choice. Yeah? The question is not to play one of these worlds against the other one and declare one to be better than the other. We both need them. But we, we need to move back and forth. Now, Sanya moves up from the immediacy onto a layer that is possible, makes it possible for us to think, communicate, recall, correlate, and things like that, all the higher mental functions. But Sanya is inaccurate. Particularly old Sanya needs to be updated, and that is the major job of Sati. That is the major job of mindfulness to update old perceptions. Footnote closed. Mudita is quite similar to compassion. It is less popular in our society. When metta establishes the relationship, creates the space, the availability, the resonance, and the continuation in the presencing of uh, my relationship to something, uh, karuna resonates particularly with the pain aspect and holds that relationship and tries to not lose connection with my powers to engage with this. Mudita resonates at the other end of the spectrum, at the joyous, at the successful, at the um, appreciative end of the spectrum, and is more celebratory. It is less doing and is more... It is more appreciative, it is more celebratory, it is more, it doesn't call for action, it doesn't call for protection like compassion does. It's more like allowing ourselves to rest in a being quality, you know. You could take any one of these words and make a mess out of it, yeah, by fixing them and creating concepts that I wouldn't want to subscribe, you know. But you, I guess you get a gist of it. It's a kind of arresting myself, allowing myself to rest in the existent goodness, in the existent, in that which already is there. It's, it's if I bring to mind that my weight can actually be entrusted to this ground, that um, there is so much good intention in this room right now. You know? There is so much wholesomeness coming together if so many people come here to practice something that, that is difficult and that they have found valuable and that they are willing to commit to to sacrifice a Saturday afternoon to. You know? There is some goodness happening here. And to acknowledge this more profoundly, this is, Mudita is particularly uh, important in view of what I said yesterday, this negative perceptual bias stuff. You know? The fact that my memory privileges negative experiences, that my recall of experience favors things that went wrong, favors things that have been threatening, favors things that have been unsuccessful in my life, that they have an evolutionary bias towards that because it maximizes my chances for learning and it maximizes my better readiness when this occurs again. Yeah. Remember the story of the fox last night yeah, eating the poisonous salamander, recalling, uh, recalling probably the, the bad experience, 
telling it to its cubs. Yeah, don't eat those salamanders. Salamander capitalizes on this because, you know, only one guy of my generation needs to be sacrificed. All the other guys, they can just put on a very bright color and then everybody recognizes them. Yeah? That's what animals do. You've seen. Yeah. There's always particularly bright animals which would be particularly easily eaten because they could be easily found and hunted. Yeah? And generally, they are poisonous in some way. Because they... They, they become bright so that they be easily seen. Yeah? And one of them gets eaten and gives some tummy ache to the guy who eats him. And then the message gets spread. Don't eat those bright things. They're tempting, but don't. Stay away. Yeah? So this is kind of negative perceptual bias. You remember the bad things. You remember the bad mushrooms you ate. You don't remember the hundred good mushroom dishes you ate. Once you're asked on your deathbed about mushrooms, you will remember the bad ones. You will not remember the hundreds and hundreds of good ones you ate, but you remember, be careful with those bad ones. So that makes sense. It makes sense in terms of evolution. It doesn't make sense in terms of happiness. That's where mudita comes in. Mudita is necessary for our growth to be able to be more conscious, more appreciative, more celebratory of what is good of what is successful, of what can be appreciated. And we have a, we have a fixation with, with pathology. Just a term, you know, the term itself is interesting. Pamodati means to be happy. We have meditational instructions. The Anapanasati Sutta tells us that one of the stages is to learn how to gladden our mind. The Buddha makes no bones. Uh, it is the happy mind that collect is easy, more easily collected. One of the, uh, it's no secret that people who have good metta practice generally have also good samatha, samatha practice or better, easier access to stillness of mind. Um, and mudita is, goes into the same direction. Our capacity to appreciate, to be grateful, to celebrate to even see what is here, connects us to some goodness, connects us to possibility, connects us to success, connects us to well-being. Not because we're getting what we want, because so many things are already here. Yeah. That is a powerful antidote to the other part of our psyche that seems to focus on the problem, yeah that seems to focus on the bit that is not good or the bit that might be dangerous or the bit that is still missing. So if you feel that your life is lacking satisfaction, try mudita practice. Try acknowledging what good stuff is already happening in your life. Try not to focus on the stuff that you didn't get. Try to focus on the stuff that you did get and you don't appreciate anymore or take for granted or don't even notice Good. Let me stop here for a moment. Let's take a break. Good. Those of you who are back, let us just sit. So let's try to acknowledge what actually is there that I have access to in terms of goodness. Don't raise the bar too high. Learning to see the good in something learning to see deeply. 
a lot of time and effort that has gone into the center, for example, that makes it possible that we can be here. The good of a wisdom tradition that comes through us, through transmission in many countries, transmission that has taken place by people whom we mostly don't know. We know the famous names, we know the famous lineages, but we don't know who fed the famous names. We don't know who built the famous teacher's hut. We don't know, we may not know this, who sponsored the book or the place he could write it. The good of a body that allows me to sit. Grateful for my spine to hold. I'm grateful to be here with you being fed, not being in pain. If I am in pain, the good that I may be able to do what I do anyway, despite the pain. Whenever I talk, I'm conscious that so much of what I say has been said by others. So much of what I say is, even if I believe it, I have heard some of it from others. All the words I use have been used by others. I've been at the receiving end of so much goodness. Teachers, friends, kalyanamitas. Insights generated in a situation shared with someone. Something that has arisen out of a very intimate context suddenly becoming a a trenchant insight that informs my thinking, informs my actions. Is it really mine? No, it's not. And yet I have access to. Its goodness is not limited to myself. People who have given me their precious attention and have helped me come to terms with something, learn something cope with something. People have disabused me of notions that are inaccurate. People who have patiently waited till I concoct my own insight rather than telling me where I was wrong. Ultimately, it is the goodness in my own heart, the beauty that comes from trusting one's own intentions, the relief to feel that one can trust one's own choose somehow. Let's evoke, invoke an image of yourself for a moment. Breathing in to your chest, widening your heart, and let before your inner eye appear an image of yourself. Take a moment, seek your gaze, look into your own face, and then let's address that being in our own heart and say, how wonderful you are here. How wonderful you are here. How wonderful you are here. 
I delight in your being. I really delight in your being. I delight in your being. I take joy in your good fortune. I take joy in your good fortune. I take joy in your good fortune. May your happiness continue. May your happiness continue. May your happiness continue. How wonderful you are in your being. I delight in your being here. I take joy in your good fortune. May your happiness continue. Ask for your attention again. The last of our Brahma Viharas, Upeka, equanimity, is um, not so easy to grasp. It doesn't correspond to a, a clear relational quality like the three others. And yet, that's maybe already the punchline that it is relational. It is a place I respect the other as genuinely different. It is a place I acknowledge relationship and yet I let the other be different. I do not demand that it become as I am. In a less abstract form, this means this is the place where I look for the, for the okayness in both of us, even though we appear different. It's the place where we say, the way I, I do this is this way, and this is a good way to do it. And the way you do it is very different, and yet it is no less a good way, yeah. It is where I am willing to have an end stand. It is also the place where I acknowledge boundary. It is the place where I acknowledge the possibility for healing and transformation, even though it looks grim right now. It is a place where I am connected with something that says, 
all all conditions allow for transformation, all conditions allow for understanding, all conditions allow for development, even if that development does not consist of things becoming again as they are or as they were. It's not an easy place, often. The not easy part of it consists in holding relationship to something that is not as I am used to. Something that may look unhappy or in crisis. And yet, that may be of the sort of crisis that turns into something that is useful. And it is not up to me. That's the basic difficulty with upeka. It is not up to me. It's an acknowledgement of my own limitations, an acknowledgement that there are other forms of conditionality there beyond my wish, beyond my intentions, beyond my skill. I acknowledge conditionality. I acknowledge that this being has a history and I have a history and within my history and his history only so much can be done. It's a particularly important uh, Brahma-vihara to understand if we're in a helping position. It acknowledges ownership it acknowledges difference It acknowledges past and future. And yet still it relates. It's not, okay, you know, you do your thing, I do my thing, and that's just how it is. Um, No, it's still, it's a connectedness. The images that the commentaries add to these Brahma-viharas may be interesting. They're all in terms of motherhood. The image for Metta is the mother in love with her newborn baby, completely focused on it, completely dedicated to it. It's not difficult to sustain attention, wrapped at any development, wrapped at any feature of that newborn. The image for Karuna is a mother of a sick child who will do everything to make that child become healthy again to help the child. It will soothe, she will soothe, she will sacrifice sleep, she will comfort, she will procure medicine, she will maybe even allow that the child is inflicted pain if it needs a treatment that is painful. Even that she's willing to procure. The goal is not to make the, feel, to make the baby feel nice. The goal is to make the baby feel healthy again. And if that health entails interventions or going to the hospital or taking medication, she will procure these things or tolerate these things, administer these things. So She will do what it takes to help. The image for Mudita is the image of a mother rejoicing at the success and the development of her child. First words, first steps. Growing up, 
becoming a long yadi, a long gentleman, having a college degree, you know, whatever. The steps of that mark progress, that mark development, that mark independence, that delight in this. And the growing up. For Upeka, the image is that of a mother of an adolescent child, the end of its adolescence. When the mother knows the child has to make its own decisions, although I may know better, although I have more experience, I have to let the child make its own decisions. Even though my decisions would be better ones, quite objectively for the kid, I am actually not supposed to make those decisions for the child. I need to trust that what I have taught the child and what the child has learned and the child understands will lead to good decisions. And even if the decisions are not good, the child will have the strengths and the resources to learn from even bad decisions. And obviously the mother still cares and still wishes the child to be well, still wishes the child to do, make clever decisions, but at the same time knows what the child now needs more than having decisions made for it is that it needs the confidence that it makes its own good decisions and the empowerment that it is allowed and entitled to do so. So Upeka has as a wish, not a wish, but as a, as a contemplation, it has the contemplations on karma, on activity, on action. We consider the implications of that. Now, I'm not interested in a big convoluted discussion today on, on karma being something other than the mechanics of rebirth, which is generally the joke most most Buddhist traditions end up with karma being nothing else but a sort of instrument to explain something hard to explain, namely like the foggy concept of rebirth. That's where I would not want to go today. Um, but karma as activity, as behavior, karma as that which I do, the whole teaching of karma does not explain why you were the queen of Saba last time round and you're just Peggy from Brooklyn this time round. This is not the purpose of the teaching of karma. The purpose of the teaching of karma is that you contemplate wholesomeness and consequence of your actions. That's the purpose of the teaching on karma. It's not what you have done. It's what you are about to do. The whole teaching of karma informs us of the power of choice, the power of behavior, the power of intention and action. The word karma means doing. Karoti is the verb for doing, and karma is the noun of it. It means action or behavior, work. The commentarial tradition, and strangely enough, the forest tradition, refer to meditation as kamatana, as the, the foundation for work. You know, that's the work of a contemplative. He's the karma of meditation. So, Upeka acknowledges conditionality. Uh, this ficus lirata here grows is um, due to various conditions. One of them is a seed for the ficus lirata, but that seed would not really do much if it was left on its own. If it wasn't planted, if it wasn't watered, if it wasn't fertilized, 
that seed would not do much. It would just wait there. Some seeds wait for a very long time before something happens. The fact that it has turned into a plant means other conditions have come into place. While the seed was indispensable, so is earth, so is light, so is warmth, so is water. All of these things cannot produce the plant. Any of these things is important for the plant, in fact, indispensable. While none of these things can produce the plant, the falling away of any single one of these things will kill the plant. This is the principle of conditionality. It's not linear mechanical causality, you know, one thing leading to the next. It's an acknowledgement that we need a seed, we need water, we need light, we need earth. And then the coming together of these things makes a plant possible. None of these factors make the plant, not even the seed, but the falling away of any single one will probably bring the plant to its undoing in the short term. It will not disappear immediately, but it will die if water falls away, if light falls away, if warmth falls away. So this principle of conditionality underpins action and that actions have consequences and these consequences have something to do with the intentionality that carries the action. The implications of this understanding are profound because they mean that we we create the worlds we live in. We create the relationships we live in. We create the minds we live in. This is not just some Buddhist fancy. It is a neurological commonplace that the brain changes by the way we use that brain. You know, the organ of a brain is formed by the activities of that brain. If you train that brain to become angry, stroppy and short-tempered, you will have more anger, stroppiness and short-temperedness in your life. And you will believe to have more reasons for that. Because you strengthen the neural pathways that allow your amygdala to be flooding your prefrontal cortex with anger. If you do something else, if you contemplate goodness in your life, if you contemplate loving kindness, if you contemplate generosity and things like that, then you will get other neural pathways being strengthened. That is what karma is like. You do something... And it will become a little easier next time. You create better structures. With brain development, this is very easy to see. You see little dendrites kind of gathering, strengthening neural pathways, growing. And, you know, synapses triggering more easily in that sequence of arrangement. So this is what karma does. It means if I strengthen that with intention and with attention and with practice, then that will get stronger. And depending on the conditions in your life and how you respond to those conditions, certain things happen. Happen more often, happen more regularly, happen more profoundly. And the more conscious we become of this process, the more we become, we regain authorship in this process. We have something to say in this. We can strengthen impulses. We can weaken impulses. 
we can abstain from following through on an impulse, we have a judgment that comes into play. So, upeka, equanimity, is the Brahma-vihara that acknowledges this principle very powerfully. It doesn't disown. It doesn't say, you know, everything is predetermined. <clears throat> you know, you just get exactly what you deserve. You know? And because I have to bet a lot, it means I've obviously been a lot more decent person than you are. And that's why you feel wretched and I'm feeling good. You know? That's not karma. That's uh, Buddhist determinism. You know? It's just bad theology. So acknowledging ownership, Acknowledging causality, acknowledging boundaries, acknowledging responsibility is a powerful message of upeka. That's one component of it. The other one is impartiality. I'm willing to relate to many different things. These Brahma-viharas have enemies. And let me end with a set of images or a set of description that speak of these enemies. Sometimes it helps us to bring something, uh, to bring something more clearly in focus when we look at what its opposite is. And the commentarial tradition in Buddhism speaks that these four Brahmaviharas have each a near and a far enemy. The near enemy is like the enemy that waits right in front of your house, where you still feel safe and just gets you where you still feel in the security of your familiar surroundings. The far enemy is the guy that gets you very, very far when you're at the furthest away from your safe grounds, from your familiar territory. So like like a, a, robber, in the mount, a, a robber in the mountain. That uh, is a kind of classical highwayman that gets you when you're far from home. So what is the near enemy? Near enemy of metta, of loving kindness or friendliness, is desire. Like metta, that sees the advantage of a thing, desire also sees the advantage of a thing. It sees the, it sees the attractiveness of a thing. In the case of metta, the seeing of the advantage or of the beauty or of the goodness of a thing doesn't give rise to desire. In the case of desire, uh, the wish is one of appropriation in some form. Yeah. Having it, owning it, controlling it, traveling to it, taking it home, eating it, marrying it. Yeah. These could all be forms of appropriation. Yeah. Desire is the response. It sounds like greed. or it sounds quite strong. It's actually not so strong. Buddhists are pretty strict on this one. If we have a pleasant experience, then for most of us, in most situations, we would like to, for this pleasant experience to stay on in time or to come back to us. So, fair, harmless enough. Well, but this is desire in Buddhist terms. Desire is not to, not just to, you know, sink you greedy white choppers into the hamburger that is in, the, in your right hand waiting. Yeah. Desire is uh, also the simple wish to revisit something that is pleasant, for something pleasant to continue, for something pleasant to slightly vary. Um, 
and for this to keep going. So that is already desire in Buddhist terminology. They're not congruent. The English term desire doesn't seem to quite do justice to the Buddhist notion of tanha, of thirst. Now the kick about the Buddhist notion of tanha is it cannot really be quenched. In other words, if you, even if you get it very shortly after, you're no longer content with it. And if you manage to gratify it, it only gratifies your appreciation, but also it deepens your neurological ruts that will very shortly after make you experience deficiency, lack, want. And if you don't, can manage to satisfy it, it will make you experience frustration. If you manage to satisfy it, you may get other forms of suffering. You may not get enough of it, or it may not deliver what exactly you expected it to, or it may exactly deliver what you expected it. You do get enough of it. In fact, you get so much of it that you slightly get tired of it, that it starts to bore you, or that you even get nauseated by it. Or you get it, it's wonderful, it's exactly as wonderful as you thought. You don't get tired of it. But you start worried to lose it. You start worried to, or, or the Joneses get a bigger one than you have, or something like that. Yeah. So there's many things that co- can go wrong with desire. Yeah. It's not just the sheer frustration of not getting what you want that, that constitutes the danger of desire. There's a few other things that can go wrong along the way. So we need another weekend for that one. Um, right now, just. The response to something pleasant in an untrained mind is usually the wish for it to continue, for it to become stronger, for it to vary, for it to stay with us. The heart wants to have it and hang on to it. The mind wants to identify with it and own it, appropriate it. it. So desire is an issue. Whatever you may think about desire, the fact is you have desires, You have many more than you probably admit to yourself. And they're a lot more potent and probably a lot more rampant in your life, even if you may think of yourself you're not a particularly greedy sort of person. Even if you think that you're just a normal sort of person. Chances are that much of your decision will be based, much of your decision-making will be based on some form of desire. Our societies are very affirmative of desires, not just American society, maybe particularly American society, but not just, yeah. Any, any society is quite affirmative of values uh, that have to do with prosperity, that have to do with safety, that have to do with enjoyment, that have to do with basically generating affluence. Our societies become a little critical of society, uh, of, of desire if it becomes abusive, if it becomes addictive, if it seems to offend good taste or if it goes at the expense of other people or of the planet. So we have a little more hesitation about desire. We have some, on the stage, on the spectrum of desire, you know, at some point we call it addiction. Yeah? And at some point we pathologize it. But Buddhists, the Buddhist spectrum is bigger than, than, than what our societies would pathologize in terms of desire. So desire is a big issue, not just um, uh, psychologically, but also spiritually, because in some way, the more we manage to gratify this desire, the more also we depend on the gratification of desire. That means the gratified desire makes us increasingly unfree. 
And that means we become more dependent, we're more prone to anxieties, we're more prone to uh, the side effects of gratified desires, of which there are quite a few. I don't want to go there today, uh, but I think for our first close enemy to meta, uh, we, it's quite obvious, seeing the advantage of something with the wish to appropriate, to partake, to have it, to own it, to identify with it, I think is a clear enough enemy. The far enemy of metta, of loving kindness, is ill will. It's the direct opposite of loving kindness and of friendliness. It is the, the wish that something bad may happen to you, that you will not succeed. Yeah. When I, was to, when I went to school, we had kind of collective attempts. We, I, had, I was in a very nice class. We did some little rituals together and, you know, that brought about a lot of bonding. And one of these little experiments was, maybe less salubrious experiment, was we were collectively engaging in an ill will, you know, kind of sitting there and in mantra-like fashion wish she would break her leg on the way up to give us a test. You know? <laughs> Unfortunately, our practice wasn't very successful in this, so fortunate enough, so she didn't break her leg. But I remember, I recall how we kind of held hands and says, break your leg, break your leg. <laughs> this would be a, a textbook case of collective ill will. Yeah? And I'm sure we're all paying a sinister karmic price for that, so I will have to buck up for that one. So ill will is the wish that something turn out bad for somebody else. Quite clear, direct, diametrically opposed to the wish that something is good, that whatever we are faced with uh, is meeting with good conditions. The near enemy of compassion is what the scriptures call uh, common villagers' distress. In other words, it is um, depression and it is distress and consternation when we meet with the suffering in other people. In other words, we empathize, but we have lost connection to our strength and to our capacity and to our own intactness. So it is just picking up on the emotional vibe of the pain in somebody else and we just join them. Rather than helping them out, we just jump into the same pit. We celebrate our helplessness. That's the European countries in, in the Balkan crisis, running around, resting, and saying, terribly sorry, hope, dreadful situation, we can't do anything. And that's before the Americans stepped in and actually did something. So that was an example of feeling terribly concerned, particularly about impending streams of refugees, but unwillingness or incapacity to actually do something about it. I think it's quite easy to see why this is a direct near enemy. It resembles compassion in the emotional component, but it is bereft of the actual helpful, powerful component. The direct opposite, the far enemy of karuna, of compassion, is cruelty. Which, again, makes sense when 
the wish to alleviate suffering is compassion uh, 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 in, in conjoint with the capacity to actually feel the other uh, in, in his or her needs, then the wish to hurt the other and to take pleasure in the suffering of the other is the direct opposite. And that's what we do. We try to maximize the pain of someone else if we're cruel. Yeah. Now, cruelty is not just something that happens in torture chambers. A cruelty is something that happens in our lives. We, we are probably more cruel than we would like to admit. It's easy to admit that we are greedy, isn't it? It's easy to admit that we have secret desires. And, uh, there's moments in our lives when we admit those, and people we share those desires, even conspiratively celebrate them. Um, but uh, cruelty is not so easily admitted. It's a lot less cool to be cruel. Yeah? But we are cruel. In subtle ways. You know, there are deeds of commission and deeds of omission, and sometimes our cruelty manifests in just, yeah, I just don't re- respond to her greeting, you know, I don't acknowledge her eye contact, or I let the telephone ring a little longer when I know who it is, and I just, I'm a little precious here, or I, she's going to wait for that at least three days now. You know? Or I'm just not available. Or, or, you know, somebody comes groveling and wants to apologize for something he or she did and we're just playing hard to get or we're kind of aloof. There's many forms to be cruel. There's many ways we can be cruel about other people's needs. We can be cruel about their dependencies. We, We can make them suffer in subtle ways devilishly and quite unseen by others. You know, there's ways we can be cruel and punitive in, in many, many forms. So sometimes we derive power from having the power from from having from being cruel. Humans have needs and particularly small humans and Humans are trying to growing up. They have needs, and if they can be, they can be hurt by just us not attending to their needs, or denying their needs, or shaming them for their needs. Or, and we can derive power, not even by being cruel, but by threatening to be cruel. That's sometimes enough. I remember I used to have a ticklish sister, and sometimes I just, I didn't even tickle her. I just kind of held up the finger and says, "I will." That was enough. We're scaring her at night. We shared a bedroom for a number of years, and she kind of, she's a few years younger, and I just kind of climbing out of bed, crawling over, and kind of jumping up. And then she would listen to my bones cracking, and then I would just lie in bed, not move, just crack my bones, you know. This is cruelty. So you remember, you know, these are harmless examples. I hope they're harmless, but uh, you know what I mean. Yeah? So we are cruel in, often in, in many ways when we, when we are not seen being cruel. There's many ways of alluding to things that may, might happen, threatening abdication or 
rejection or abandonment. Psychologically, this can be really honed, the art of cruelty in relationships or uh, when dependencies are there. It takes some honesty to acknowledge one's own cruelty or one's own tendency to act that way. That it is a direct opposite to uh, Karuna, I think, seems obvious to me. Mudita has as a direct enemy, um, again, the equivalent to the, the common villagers' despondency, as in Karuna. It has the common villagers' uh, wish to just join the fun. Yeah? So the, the, the near enemy of Mudita, of joy and sympathetic joy, is the party spirit. I'm not really interested in what you're celebrating. I'm just in, I just want to get at the beer, basically. Yeah? I just want to be part of the fun here. I'm, yeah. I'm very happy for your daughter to have a college degree, but just let me, where, where is the buffet? Yeah? Yeah? So I just want to get in on the party. I want to have fun. I want to share it, the vibe. So that's the near enemy. And with all these near enemies, sorry, they somehow resemble the quality we're talking of, isn't it? sometimes so closely resemble that it's not easy to say what is what. That's why it is maybe more necessary to look at the near enemy than at the far enemy. The far enemy of uh, Mudita is discontent. It's a character that is personified as one of Mara's daughters. Mara has a couple of daughters, and in some tradition he also has sons. And one of them is Arati. Arati means displeasure. So, Arati is grumpy. Arati doesn't smile before 10 o'clock in the morning. Arati does take delight in not showing delight, in being not tickled, in not being uh, amused. Arati uh, is somebody at whose arm I have walked many, many miles in my life. I've flirted with Arati a lot. So it's easy to flirt with arati. We're as a culture, we're good at this. We are very happy at not being happy. We're very good at being discontent. We have plenty of reasons. Our discerned, our cultivated tastes all make us aware that things are not quite as good as they could be. You know? Wrong type of jam on the breakfast table. This cannot continue that way. Yeah. <laughs> So discontent, we have many words for this. Mm. Sullenness, grumpiness, discontent. Um, you know, you, you, I'm sure you, you know a few more. We're disgruntled, we're, we're kind of... It's a state of mind that we experience a lot. Yeah. Affluent societies seem to have more of this. It's, the opposite, obviously, is joy. And gratitude. It's the feeling I'm not going to join. I'm not going to laugh at your joke. I'm not going to be nice. And sometimes we turn it into a power game. Yeah. So by refusing to reverberate with something, to resonate, to join in, you know, we retain power, and we cut ourselves off, and we diminish our chances for experiencing joy. Yeah? I think it's quite close, quite easily seen. 
The near enemy of Upeka is indifference. That's an important one. Near enemy of Upeka is as equanimous as is equanimity itself, but it has cut off the, the dimension of relatedness. The near enemy says, I don't care. I don't give a damn. I'm cool and equanimous because there's nothing that's going to hurt me. You know, too bad for you, but sorry, not my building site. It is the refusal to acknowledge the relational dimension, refusal to acknowledge interconnectedness in more uh, Buddhist terms. And as that, it is something we all have probably sinned in. One of the ways we cope with overwhelm and with um, the intensity of information, the intensity of sensory impingement, we cope with indifference, which is go numb. Again, the proximity to the actual quality is dangerously close. You know? The far enemy of Upeka, we already are familiar, it is both greed and it is ill will. It is the two enemies of um, Metta. Because those two things are pulling the mind out of its equanimous position. Either the greedy one wants to go there and the angry one wants to go away from there. No. Both of them make the mind lose its position of serene equanimity. So sometimes it helps to actually acknowledge um, these enemies. They bring a little bit of relief to the uh, affirmative position of the Brahma-viharas. And as I say, these things are not far from us. We all have access to these Brahma-viharas. They're not just meditative attainments. This is not just the stuff of first, second, third, and fourth jhana, although they are equated with some of them. Um, Buddhist cosmology has equated the jhanic states with cosmological realms. That's why they're called Brahma-viharas, because Brahma-viharas are Brahma-gods. Brahma-devas are... Um, Creatures of light, and they have—they um, are effusive and they're expansive, like light. And if a mindful state of Brahma Vihara is expanded and purified by deep samadhi, then it goes boundless. That's where they get their other name from. Yeah, the boundless ones or the immeasurable ones. But Brahma Viharas on the layers I spoke of last night. Yeah, the three layers as the basic layer, as things we cannot lose as gifts to that constitute our humanity, as virtues, where they are closest to emotions but not identical with, and as meditative objects, and as expressions of complete freedom of an awakened mind. You know, Even on the bottom layers, these Brahma-viharas, they're there. We have all familiarity with them. You're not alien to them, or the other way around. They are not alien to you. Yeah, so it's important to acknowledge this. If we want to cultivate Brahma-viharas, why not starting to acknowledge where they already take place? Yeah. That's be the first powerful act to cultivate Brahma-viharas is to acknowledge where you already actually experience these Brahma-viharas in your life. And then to make more of them, to strengthen them as virtues, to acknowledge them, to see them in others, in yourself, particularly in yourself. Sometimes it's difficult for us to see our own virtues. We're so trained to identify with our own hang-ups and our neuroses that 
sometimes it feels difficult to actually acknowledge our own strength and virtues. Uh, also, they are frightening to us sometimes, you know. Suddenly, if we admit that we have strength and virtues, it, it means we should, have some, we, sh- we should do something with them. It's easier to not have strength and virtues than nobody can expect me really to do something, to change something, to take responsibility for something. So sometimes it's actually quite challenging to acknowledge how much power you have or resources or goodness because then the next question is obviously what are you going to do with this? And that can be a discomforting question. So consider them and consider your life and where they crop up in your life, where you identify any of those four. Ponder them if you look at their opposites. And allow me to stop here and see whether I can respond to questions and whether we can sit for a minute or two before we close. Time flies indeed. Let me turn over to you and see. Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. Hi. Hi. I've read about the jhanas, like in the Potapara Sutta, but I've not heard any teachers uh, talk about them. Uh, you mentioned them. I'm particularly curious how they relate to the Brahma Viharas. Can you, can you say more? Yes. If you want jhanas, it is a deep sense of absorption or deeply calm states of mind, then practice Brahma Viharas. This is a powerful way to get there. Start with metta. The um, tradition associates Brahmaviharas with meditative objects that both lead to deeper states of mind, and p- particular Brahmaviharas are also associated with particular jhanas. Yeah? So the the most subtle one is upeka, is equanimity, which is a which is there in the fourth jhana. There's still some upeka there before that, but that's the one, that's the last one to go. Yeah. Yeah. The topic is quite uh, ramified and needs some, it basically generally needs personal talking. Yeah. If you want to read about jhanas, there are some number of books. Just come up and I'll tell you later. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Last night, you, uh, I was grateful that you. Uh, gave a view of attention that was much more holistic and relational and uh, built up to the Brahmi Viharas from there. Uh, Today you mentioned a word once, curiosity, which uh, I think is uh, also a very important kind Mm. of relational attention that uh, takes you both to self-discovery also takes you to the world and to others. Uh, in fact, when, uh, when curiosity disappears in a relationship, I think the relationship usually goes dead. In a marriage, for example, when people take each other for granted. So I wonder if there's any area in the region of Buddhist practice you've been talking about for curiosity, any particular um, uh, emphasis on it. Hmm. Well, well, you have a couple of strands that keep cropping up in Buddhist teaching. So one strand is say to practice on effort, energy, 
application, yoga, dedication, these kind of things. So the whole virya axis. And then another axis is the axis of inquiry. Yeah? So we have many terms for inquiry. Yoni samanasikara, vijara, vitaka, vimangsa, pachavekana. Many, many Pali terms speaking of, a for, of differing variants of inquiring, probing into, researching, investigating. Yeah? And curiosity is in there, is in that this is a, a real line. And if you want to trace it back, you can see that one aspect of sati, of mindfulness, has that being at the edge of the known, you know, kind of skirting the edge of the known and kind of dipping toes into that which is beyond. Um, you have an image on sati. One of the images is a painful image. as of a surgeon operating on a, a wounded person that has an arrowhead in its flesh. And the arrowhead is buried because the shaft is broken off. So the surgeon doesn't actually see the size, the shape, the depth of the foreigner's part that has intruded into the body. And to find out about this, the surgeon uses an instrument called a probe to figure out with tactile means something about the contours and the depth and the size of this foreigner's body. And that probe is likened to sati. So sati is investigating what the eye doesn't see. Like the probe brings to awareness of the surgeon what his eyes do not have access. Sati brings to the light of understanding what is buried, namely the three lakanas, the three hallmarks of existence, impermanence, impersonality, conditionality. Um, So... In a way, you could say that one of the dimensions of sati is that curiosity that probes into that which is not yet known. That is at the edge. It's it's a liminal quality. It's at the edge of something not yet known. It's beyond what you have names for. When your sati talks in straight terms, you can be sure it's not sati. It's memory. And sati is always at the edge of that which is not yet known. So uh, that's as far back as I could trace it. Then you have obviously encouragement to ask questions. The act of asking questions is equated with intelligence in Pali's text. That's an interesting one. Because one can ask questions in many different ways, you know, Uh, but... uh, and even the Pali texts refer to different ways one can ask questions or how questions could be responded to. But there is definitely an encouragement to formulate or to find ways into that which is not known. Yeah? Just something, how, how come or how is it? Or, ah, oh, look at that. You know, it's kind of a, on the verge, there's a tinge there of amazement, something of interest, curiosity. These things are all skirting the edges of the known, isn't it? If you're just a plain positivist, you're not curious. You just say, this is what I know and the rest I don't know. And I'm not going there because I don't know about it. So it's unsafe. So I just stay with what I know. That's basically the end of learning, isn't it? 
And that what you, I believe, touch into is if I am curious, that means I'm going to push the boundaries out, isn't it? I'm going to risk going beyond what I already have data on. And I, I would probably agree with you. If that is gone in a relationship, it's bad for the relationship. If you can't surprise me anymore, then uh, the part of me has, has probably written you off. And then you better surprise me, otherwise I fall asleep, and then we're gone. Yeah. Thank you. Please, there's two or three hands over there. The lady. This is probably a quick and easy question. You had mentioned disassociation. Yeah. Is uh, somatizing pain into the body that has no physical origin a form of disassociation? So I didn't catch you. Oh. Is somatizing pain into the body that has no physical seeming origin a form of disassociation? No, I would doubt it. No. Um, uh, maybe not, I may not be the best specialist on this, but somatizing pain generally is not a form of dissociation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming here. Mm. It was really good. Uh, some, some texts describe a formal meditation on metta. And uh, so a person might be interested in adding this to a normal practice. And there is an initial enthusiasm for this. And everything goes well for a few days or a few weeks. And then it seems that... that uh, set of words that the person is repeating becomes dry and dry and there is no feeling and it just seems you're doing concentration now through, uh, through these words. So, so how can a person develop metta in a, in a systematic way? Well, you know, these, uh, these say, fra phrases and sentences you are probably referring to, they are just one way of engendering that. It's the, it's the kind of, it's a powerful and very accessible way of actually formulating a wish verbally and then strengthening it by repeating that wish. But the idea is that you, you don't just stay with the words. You connect it with a somatic feel, for example. And maybe you have to change those words. Yeah. Maybe you have to make those words your words, your language whatever your language may be, or your particular, uh, change the syntax. I needed to change those words for me when I came across this practice of practicing the Brahma Viharas with sentences, which I resisted to quite a bit, being quite a wordy sort of fellow. I felt this is a rather dry, um, you know, attempt. And I, I responded to that by basically making those words my own. So I changed them from language, I changed names in there, I, I changed the wording, I found, I played with it so that it was meaningful to me. So start to own it in a way, make it yours. Maybe those sentences need working, re reworking. Get a name in there. Start with yours. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, uh, Look, maybe there is other ways that your mind responds. Maybe your mind is visual. Yeah? So you evoke an image. 
rather than saying a phrase that is neutral and directed somewhere into the empty space, you you put a face there that is symbolizes for you that particular quality or that evokes that quality in you even better. You know? So get in there, get messy. You can't do it wrong. You will notice if it goes wrong. If you suddenly get sexually aroused or if you get disgusted or something like that, you will notice it. You know? So make, it this, make this yours. Um, and see what, um, listen to how different teachers do that. Sometimes just a change of voice makes a difference. A change of imagery makes a difference. Listen to some Tibetan teachers on Tonglen, for example. Listen, go to Dharma Seed and use metta in the filter tag or loving kindness. And then you get tons of talks. And then you just see whether you respond to a female voice or to a male voice better. Or to particular teachers of their own imagery and so and. That may help, that may teach you something about you. Even if it doesn't work, it will teach you something about you. You will meet the resistance. Yeah. See, part of metta practice, it's quite subversive. It starts off with promising you nice feelings, and where it actually takes you to is where it hurts and where it doesn't want to be nice, which is, no, not him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this is kind of Buddhist soft cell, and this is, not, this is not so easy. Sometimes metta practice takes you to really painful places, even though it's apparently a nice sort of thing to do. Yeah? You, you meet the bits which don't have metta. And then you, your practice of metta consists of actually understanding your resistance better or acknowledging the depth of your ill will or something like that. You make acquaintance with the near and far enemies. That's also part of metta practice. Don't confuse the practice just with having those feelings. But find a way in there. I'm sure your mind will tell you. Yeah? Yeah. Good. There was a last word, a last one. Are we good? I don't want to keep you. Um, I'm starting to, uh, to do some meta practice because I've understood that it's uh, something I need to do, and um, and it's being described and pursued as uh, a mindfulness practice. But uh, one of the teachers, the guiding teacher here, as a matter of fact, said that she pursued meta as um, a concentration practice. Can you talk just a little bit about that dichotomy or that ostensible dichotomy? Yeah, it's not a dichotomy. You know. uh, dichotomy is a really harsh word for just two facets of the same thing. Uh, you pick it up and there is, a, there, is a, there, there is even an inside aspect to it. You, know, you can't cultivate meta without finding out few things about yourself yeah now that is quite insightful you can't if your mind starts to uh, make much of this practice then there is a strength of stillness and calm coming with this so you have a samatha aspect and uh, mindfulness is something that is in in every aspect of meditative development is is probably at the heart the seed quality so um you know, Ajahn Chah, when asked about this samatavipassana business, said, you know, if you have a branch and you put it up, 
take it up. You can take it at the samatha end or at the vipassana end. But if you if you lift it up enough, you've got both ends because it's one branch. <laughs> Whichever end you grasp first, if you, if you lift it up, both ends are going to come up. Yeah. So uh, this is maybe more to do with marketing than with actual difference or dichotomy. <laughs> yeah. So Thank if you. you join the mindfulness lot, they will probably sell you metta practice, not as big Brahma-viharas, but they will sell you... Pro- Meta practice is a necessary prerequisite of getting mindfulness off the ground. Yeah? If you join the Buddhist lot, they will probably bombard you with Pali words or so, and they will say, this is important, this is important, this wall of books you have to read, join up, get a card-carrying membership, and so forth. Yeah? So they do something else with you. But basically, if you get in there, you will meet mindfulness at the hub if you pursue that practice, it will become instrumental in both generating stillness and be part of that stillness. And you will derive some insight. Yeah. And some emotional intelligence will also be in there somewhere. Yeah. Now, what particular teachers favor may differ. And I can't stand for different teachers. But canonically, they're all valid. Yeah. Uh, they hang for me all together. In some way, if you go in there, you realize these are all facets of practice, of development. And knowing that these facets are part of one practice is reassuring in one way. And the other way, you need to find out which facet you need to take as an entry uh, and which facet you miss out and you need to strengthen. So that becomes... Part of a mature practitioner's own understanding of his or her practice to see those aspects and also to see their lack or deficiency in one's own notion of practice. That's generally a sign of maturation. And that's where, you know, teachers can help. Thank you. Good. Yeah. There was a last one here. No, this lady here has been. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I wanted to ask about early trauma. As you've described the brain processes that get laid out, when there's been a pattern of trauma from infancy, can this way of working with these meta practices help to clear that and create? a release of those pathways, can that be remodeled? Certainly can be remodeled. Um, I, I'm hesitant because I suddenly become a trauma expert now, which is not what I am. Um, yeah, they can help, but probably uh, conjoined uh, with some other work. Yeah? And I wouldn't just want to leave you to your own devices, yeah? Because your own devices will probably strategize around the trauma in some way, yeah? So that's where, again, teachers and therapists are quite handy people to have, not because they're always right, but because they give you some outside perspective on what's going on. Yes, mindfulness is a very powerful way, particularly connected with a deepened somatic awareness, Without somatic awareness, mindfulness is not to be trusted. It just will foster more splitting off. So some bodily anchor will 
will be needed. And that is precisely the challenge. If there is trauma, then it's generally difficult to be with the body because that's where trauma uh, is still, trauma energy is still cycling. So that generally needs some outside vectors to help with this. People who are close, people who are skilled in these things and people who are willing to engage with you on that level rather than on the level of story and narrative. But yeah, I have great uh, faith in the power of embodied mindfulness. And, uh, you know, we all have traumas. Birth, the first one, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Good. A last one, and then we need to end. Uh, thank you for being here. And uh, I'm just kind of uh, wondering, uh, one practice I started doing recently on purpose, uh, not just by chance, is to before, perform a certain a number of acts of kindness each day. Um, and, um, you know, in any way, shape, or form that it comes up. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering, it seems to me that that kind of gets more to the core of where I need to be right now because it's action-oriented it's not just in my mind. It's not just kind of saying, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, mm. et cetera. I'm actually doing something specific for mm-hmm. a person or giving something specific to a person. Or mm-hmm. uh, That's good. That's great. Just do me the favor. Recall that when you meditate later. Just make sure that you recall these acts of kindness as part of your meditative exercise. Just bring to your mind the goodness you have engaged in yeah. not just do them that's that's important but also make yourself familiar with the goodness that is in your own heart and that you have actually given um, form and shape and through your activities yeah. thank you yeah thank you for coming Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.